That's the homie Marnie Breckenridge. The New York Times calls her voice a lovely soprano. In 2020, she scored Canada's prestigious Dora Award for her outstanding performance in Jacqueline, an opera about British cellist Jacqueline Dupre. Marnie's musical journey is like a global adventure, performing in operas and symphonies everywhere. She's the go-to for incredible composers, starring in world premieres and recording albums like David Conti's Everyone Sang and Herschel Garfine's The Layers. And she's played Kathy in a film about an opera, Gordon Getty's Goodbye Mr. Chips. Marnie's not just about hitting those high notes, though. She's also passionate about mentoring young women in the arts. With master of vocal performance, opera, and an actor's certificate, she's the guide you wish you had. Currently residing in Atlanta, Georgia with her husband and two kids, Marnie's got something exciting lined up. A triumphant return to Bel Canto in the title role of Donizetti's Lucia de la Memor with Orlando Opera in 2024. Get ready for a musical treat. Welcome to the Homie Hub Podcast. I'm your host, John Facundo. And on this show, I shoot the breeze with some of my friends about their everyday lives. Some of them have managed to go on to do some pretty cool stuff. I'm talking to regular people who sometimes go on to do extraordinary things. So kick back, listen in, and enjoy the show. This is the Homie Hub Podcast. If you're in school, you can't wait to I want to welcome the lovely and very talented Marnie Breckenridge. Marnie, thanks for joining me. It's good to talk to you. Great to talk to you, too. I was on YouTube the other day, and I looked you up, and there is a video that you have for Casey Poo Fare. Oh, that yeah. you did? Yeah. Wow. Isn't that fun? That's a cool modern interpretation of that of that work with uh, Mercury Soul and Mason Bates. He's a wonderful living modern composer um, who he just had some huge success with his opera about Steve Jobs um, e. and Apple and whatnot. Um, anyways, but yeah, he's he's also a DJ. And so he like mixes, you know, sounds and he's got like this really interesting uh, soundscape in his writing. And so he did this kind of beats on top of the Barbara Strozzi, one of the earliest female composers um who wrote this Casey Pofare and he set the beats to it and then we like it was a, a freezing night in February um and we went out under this full moon and 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 filmed this kind of funky funky cool styling for that piece that was fun yeah I encourage anyone listening to go check it out because it is fantastic um it's very emotional very emotive and that's one thing that I've I've uh gathered from your performances is they convey so much emotion um i remember seeing you um i think the first time i saw you perform you did the lord's prayer years ago mm -hmm. and it yeah it blew me away it, it, impressive thank you that's so sweet thank you um well you know i guess singers are supposed to like you know, sing the music that's on the page kind of first, right? Like that's what you're supposed to serve. But then there's also words and then somebody saying those words. So who's that character saying the words? So I don't know. I try to, I try to be that character. I don't know if I always do it, but um, I try to. It's fun. It's playtime for me. It's like getting to put on 
these costumes or get on getting to put on a whole different persona, a whole different life and and pretending in that world it's super fun. <laughs> so let's go back to the beginning. Let's talk about how you got your start. Um fill us in on where you started and where you are. Okay. Well, um, so as you know, since we met in high school, I always sang uh, solos and in, um, you know, choir and um, in church. And I grew up in, in LA and did some acting as a kid. And my parents were very supportive and would drive me to these auditions. And, and then um, when I went to college, I started to study science because like all of my other <laughs> or so many of my other friends who graduated from the same class, it was the, uh, there was some pressure to go into pre-med, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'm going to be pre-med too. Ha ha ha. And then I would have to study like 10 times harder for the science quiz than other people to get like a lower grade. And I thought, oh, this is not easy. And it's not like I was trying to pick something easy, but not something that was so hard that I felt like I had brain damage after I was taking a <laughs> class. Um, I, I kind of studied some music and business and art history minor and and didn't quite know what I wanted to do with my life in college for sure. I knew I wanted to sing, but I didn't know how viable that was. But I didn't really know I wanted to sing professionally until the week before my college graduation um, mm. where I got into a terrible car accident and I broke my mm. right femur. Ouch. Someone ran me off the road. Yeah. And my car hit a tree and my leg was, you know, trying to stop the car. And at the time, like I didn't have a proper lap belt. It was like I had bought, I had gotten like a deal on this Jetta and it only had a, a, a this, um, shoulder harness. It didn't have the lap belt. Like that was extra or something. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so I broke my femur, and it was pretty tra traumatic. Um, and in the hospital, I was watching TV, and there was Liza Minnelli performing on the TV. And I don't even remember what it was because I was so drugged up on all these, you know, painkillers, and I was having a really hard time with that. I had two blood transfusions, and I'd lost so much blood. And you know, a femur is a very large bone, and they had to put a rod right through the middle, and it was a big thing. Uh, and I was laying there and thinking, watching Liza Minnelli perform and thinking, if she can do it, I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, maybe I made this decision while I was under way too many painkillers. Uh, but uh, after that, I kind of like started to drum up a plan to maybe try to figure out whether I could make this a viable you know, thing to do. And so I spent about a year recovering and worked at a real estate office um, as a secretary as I was going to physical therapy twice a week and living at my parents' house near the hospital. And uh, then I just said, hey, I'm just going to audition for the San Francisco Conservatory of Music and maybe I could do a master's because at this point I had a the, the college I went to let me cobble together a BS in music. So it wasn't a BA, mm. a Bachelor of Arts, it was a Bachelor of Science because they let me transfer some of my science credit over and it kind of was like little business, little this, little that. It became a BS in music because then I ended up taking theory for two years and choir and like some of the technique classes and all the music history classes. So that's how I ended up with that. 
Anyway, so I kind of stumbled three weeks late into the San Francisco Conservatory and said, hey, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about doing a master's. Literally, school had started three weeks prior. <laughs> They're like, yeah, we'll take you. We'll take you. And um, so I said, okay, I'm going to kind of give myself until I'm 30. If I can't, if it doesn't look like this is happening, then I'll just start fresh with something else. I didn't know what, but, you know, I also kind of thought in the back of my mind I could be a choir director or because um, I also enjoyed that you know, choral directing. <laughs> and so I took conducting classes and all that too. Anyway, so went to the conservatory and started getting cast in things and started getting encouraged and found a great teacher and and then got my first opera outside of the school. And so it, you know, started studying all the languages even more. Oh, I studied languages in college too. Um, but really started perfecting Italian and French and um, singing in and speaking a little bit of German. Um, that's uh, so something you obviously need to be an opera singer is you've got to study all these languages and styles. So, right. yeah, so I got a master's in music. And then from there, it's just been a, you know, a study of oh, learning on, on the road, learning in the minute, learning, you know, when I'm on the job and uh, with great coaches and great teachers behind the scenes also. So, yeah, that's how I got my start. And I had fallen in love with opera because I had started taking voice lessons when I was in college with a teacher who was in San Francisco, kind of off campus, you know, so I would drive down once a week and make this whole thing of it and really started to learn what the, the what it was about and started to go, go to operas. We didn't go to operas growing up. My parents occasionally listened to like Pavarotti and Leontine Price. Like I think we had a record or two of theirs, but it was mainly liturgical music that we grew up listening to, straight classical, like symphonic work. And then pop or whatever was on the, the radio. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, I would watch MTV and, and, you know, VH1 and all that after school. And I never th thought I could be a pop singer or anything like that. I didn't know enough about Broadway, however. Mm. Um, I, I probably could have made a li little headway in Broadway, which would have been fun. I got cast to do Christine in the Phantom of the Opera. But I turned it down because I was in the middle of my master's training and all my teachers were like, don't take Christine and Phantom. You'll ruin your voice. You'll never learn how to sing opera, bel canto, mm. you know, and I turned it down. And in retrospect, this was actually right after I'd finished my master's um, at the San Francisco Conservatory. And it was to be the Christine in the current theater there in San Francisco that would have gone, you know, there would have been the Broadway connection because it was the Broadway casting people who cast the San Francisco show. That's been kind of one of my regrets in my life is that I didn't just take it to see. But I also didn't love the show. <laughs> I didn't love Phantom of the Opera. I liked aspects of it, but I didn't love it. And I thought, oh, could I do that for eight shows a week? I don't know if I could. Yeah. Anyway, so I kind of was a little, uh, I was just a scaredy cat. I should have probably gone for it, but all of my teachers were saying, don't do it, don't do it. So I kind of just followed what they, they said and I didn't do it. And then I, you know, in retrospect, maybe it was a good decision because then, you know, I did learn how to sing operatically and, you know, still learning <laughs> <laughs> every day. Still trying. <laughs> Can you share a memorable moment or experience from a performance that that made a significant impact. I mean, you just talked about that little transition, but was there another one that kind of just 
pinpointed like, this is my life. This is my career. This is what I do. And what a cool question. I, I, I love that you thought of that. That's so, because there is such a journey in, in life and we all have our own kind of spirit journeys. A lot of people find it through religion or they find it through a relationship with another person or, um, in nature or whatever. And I do think that the technique of singing and learning how to sing bel canto and opera and classical music has been a, a spiritual journey for me because there's a lot of, you know, push and pull with the ego, a lot of um, really technical work, like really understanding on an analytical level what it is you are doing and then letting it go so that it can therefore become an involuntary reaction, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like trying to, you know, kind of deduce how you walk. That's just an involuntary thing that if you're able to walk, that you just your brain just says walk and you do it. So you have to study a technique until it gets to the point where you just say sing and you do it or sing it more beautifully <laughs> or sing a better vowel on that that high note or don't forget to breathe and don't forget to support for that high note, etc. But to answer your question, um, there was a moment when I was in I was so I was in um, England in the countryside. There's this opera company. They're called Glyndebourne, and I had just done this huge show at English National Opera, a uh, Candide, uh, which was directed by Robert Carson. And um, to drop the uh, name, drop a little. He he's like one of the best directors I've ever worked with. Just visionary. And um, we did this Candide that. Uh, there was actually a video on YouTube of me singing Glitter and Be Gay. That's the big soprano aria from that opera, but staged like Marilyn Monroe in Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment when that all hit that is kind of Broadway and opera all together. And that that I role I performed more than any in the standard rep, um, Kunagonda, and she's kind of Broadway and opera at the same time. But what that lent itself to was modern music. So later that summer, I got asked to cover a piece um, called Love and Other Demons based on the Gabriel Garcia Marquez book, you know, and it was by a composer called Heta Otros. It was some of the most difficult music I've ever done because there, were, there was part mm. of it in the Rubin and um, uh, Spanish and English lots of high notes, really difficult. And there was a moment in th that piece that I said t that I was able to um, learn it pretty quickly, even though it was difficult for me. And it kind of reminded me of those medical school days, where, or not medical school, but uh, pre-med, where I was like, oh, this is so hard. I don't think I can do it. And um, yeah, I found out later on in life, I have a little bit of dyslexia. And so no wonder certain things were so hard, but like once I memorize it and get it in my body, it's there forever kind of a thing. It's second nature, sure. Yeah. So that summer I had to learn this difficult piece and I felt that I had a moment on stage where I felt like I was the character. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, it sounds so weird to say that, but... And... I was like, this is my place. This is what I'm supposed to be doing is telling these newer stories that are kind of non-archetype um, mm -hmm. and that are not the traditional stories. And so from that moment on, it was like all the things I got cast in after that were only modern opera. 
it was weird. It was almost like there was a shift in the universe and they just went, yep, that's your lane. This is what you're meant to do. And the reactions I was getting from, you know, some of the stagecraft people and the, and the, um, directors and people there, I was like, yeah, this is, this is your lane. So that moment really was a turning point for me. So having done um, both classical and contemporary works, how do you approach your vocal style to the different genres and time periods? Mm -hmm. Oh man, it's so, it's so wild because um, I try to approach everything from a, an operatic technique so that I know that I'm on my breath, you know, um, well, maybe you don't know, like on my breath, like this feeling of spin always going as a girl from California and as somebody who is probably naturally talented to do Broadway. And when I communicate in English, it's easy to kind of have this sideways approach, sort of like, ah, ah, hi, I'm Marnie Brackenridge, instead of the operatic approach or more Italianate vowels, which is Hi, I'm Marnie Breckenridge. You know, there's like a change of how you let your resonators resonate, you know, that kind of a thing. Right. So there's a physiognomy that happens that changes uh, when you sing Italian or French or, you know, and then it changes a little bit for German, which is English is Germanic. So German and English are kind of a little more similar in the cut that you get with vowels and uh, consonants. Um, and then, you know, stylistically, um, you approach it. I try to like make myself a French girl. I try to think like a French person or I try to think like an Italian person when I when I sing in, in different languages. Um, so I approach it physically in my body where I feel resonators happening when I'm speaking. If it's going to be a flat A vowel or if it's going to be an open A vowel. So you make little adjustments for each thing. Um a lot of, uh, well, recently I've, I've recorded a lot of English, you know, American art songs in English. And I'd love to express in English because it's the language I know best. And, you know, so I think that my English songs sound a certain way. They sound a little more American. Um, and some might say even a little bit more Broadway. Um, not Broadway, like belting, like, ha! Oh my gosh. I didn't have any corn. Um, we were talking about that the other night. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I, but so, and then opera. So then for Bel Canto opera, it's definitely this spin, this longer, um, feel in your head, you know, kind of like a, you feel all the way to the top of your head, your palate, you know, e. I try not to like raise my palate artificially because it can get stuck, <laughs> but to just make sure it's really supple. Um, and interestingly enough, I'm revisiting a role, a bel canto role in April called Lucia di Lamamur by Donizetti. And I've done this role three times at different opera companies in the U.S. Um, but it's been like years and years. It's been like 15 years since I've sung this piece. Um, because I've been in modern music world for the last 15 years, mm -hmm. doing one world premiere after another of, uh, you know, uh, some have been in different languages, but mainly it's been in English, um, helping to develop new roles and, and, and new stories. 
And now I'm going to, in April, go sing this Belcanto thing. And I'm like, I got to get back in shape for it. And so <laughs> I've been like, just practicing a ton. And, you know, it's coming back. And now it's actually kind of really satisfying because it's different now. I'm a little bit older. I understand more about my spin and my bel canto technique that I didn't even understand then, you know, because mm-hmm. you're always finding out stuff of because you feel a certain thing in your mind and in your body as you're singing, you feel these vibrations, but you don't know how it sounds out there. You know, you've got to either have a great recording device or you've got to have a great coach who knows how to listen to you and how to help you go, oh, your AVAL is getting a little too forward or it's going a little too far back, you know. So it's a real science and, and strange, like, you know, witch's brew of <laughs> thoughts and feelings. And, you know, you can change your pitch in your mind, and but does your body want to do it that day, you know? You've spoken about the more or less the technical aspects of your singing. And I do know that there's the emotional component as well. Mm-hmm. And each um, country of origin for opera has their own specific sort of emotion. How do you tap into that? Hmm. That's a great question. Well, for Italy, I, I did spend some time living in Italy and studying there. Um, spent like a summer. And then I befriended this wonderful woman named Roberta Cardinali and, and I'm still really good friends with her. In fact, I was in Europe this summer and she and her sister came and met us in Florence for the day, which was this two hour, you know, big excursion for them from their little town, Perugia. And so I spent a lot of time in Italy. I've spent a lot of time around Italian people. And, you know, not not every Italian emotes big like like Italian opera often does. Uh, right. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to hold yeah. the fingers together. Mamma mia. Um, Verdi and Puccini, you know, they have these big, sweeping rubati in this, like, you know, they just know how to pluck the heartstrings with the way they put the chords together and they're, you know, the phrasing. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of Italian people I've met are actually quite subtle, quite controlled, quite proper. Um, you know, there's some of that, you know, Mamma mia! But it's is has become kind of an ism that that people put onto Italians because if you really meet Italians, like they're not all like that. Of course, there's mm-hmm. heart and soul. And if you, if they're if, like an Italian singer that I met there, you know, and befriended, you know, this larger than life tenor, he was definitely that way. You know, so I think also in music too, you're playing with levels. You're playing with like the height, the highest heights and the lowest lows, because that's what's interesting storytelling, right? You've got an obstacle mm-hmm. and let's, let's get through it. Uh-oh, my love interest died. Now I've got to mourn about it and everybody's got to cry with me. So let's make that music sound like that, you know? So, right. you know, and so then, and then French, um, you know, same thing, spent time there and, and. I have also studied like these styles with, you know, people who are experts in these, in these fields, um, and over the years, you know, met them in workshops and opera, opera apprenticeship programs that I was involved in. Like I did one at Santa Fe opera and they brought in a French specialist, a German specialist, an Italian specialist. So you learn about style and then you might talk about the peoples and their emotion. Um, so, but to, to truly answer your question, I take my, pretend emotions or my own emotions 
to pretend to be that character. So if I were an Italian girl making this protestation of love, <laughs> I might have Marnie Breckenridge's emotion and then might add a little extra, you know, arrabbiata or a, a little extra, you know, something like I'll let myself go and pretend to be that other person and go a little bigger or a little smaller because in real life I do kind of have a bright big personality I, mm -hmm. I like to talk I love people I you know I'm kind of like hey, 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 hi, you know and um and so you know either a little more or a little less um but the emotion I don't know I think I just can read a story and I do have a high level of empathy of being able to like I cry a lot you know so when I see somebody going through something I can't help but ugh, take it on which has not always helped me because I've taken on other people's problems sometimes in my life and you know made it my problem which is you know too too empathetic so I've learned how to protect my gut and how to protect my heart you know but um that kind of blood in the eye performer that goes with that right, I think is right. part of that cocktail of of emotion that I can draw from. I, I have to imagine that when you're out of the spotlight and you've brought such intense emotion, whether it's elation or you're mournful, or I have to imagine that you're just completely exhausted. Can be, can be afterwards. Um, uh, yeah. It's weird though that the last few times that I did Lucia after she dies at the end because she has this huge mad scene and it's like difficult, difficult singing and everybody's just on pins and needles watching her and then there's this big high note at the end and she dies and it's a long sing like she, it's um, probably a solid hour plus of singing but you know interspersed throughout the night. I'm actually invigorated by the end like I feel like I could do the whole thing all over again. Because it's mm. such it's such a ride of of adrenaline that it's like like you know the feeling of being able to dance all night mm -hmm. you know like you're like I should, I should be should be tired by now and you're like no this is so fun you know so I feel that a lot of times also uh, but there have been pieces that I've been absolutely emotionally drained one called Dog Days um, which was another modern piece about basically like the end of of everything the end of time starving to death um you know are we going to eat the man who's pretending that he's a dog uh mm. he's pretending to act like a dog and then are we going to eat him to stay alive and my character dies in the end and i have to lay motionless on stage for a very long time where this drone comes and the daughter washes my dead body i mean it's like this whole thing it can't breathe it's very grim it's very grim and at the end i'm just like okay i need a nap that was exhausting <laughs> what is your favorite piece to perform and what makes it so special for you um both vocally and emotionally um i don't know if you've heard that old adage that you know my favorite piece is the one i'm currently working on <laughs> but uh there's this wonderful piece that we did in 2020 right before lockdown called jacqueline and it's based on the mm. life of jacqueline dupre the cellist who was very famous in the mm -hmm. 60s and 70s 70s married to daniel barenboin and then she died of of ms mm. 
And that was before, you know, there were any treatments of MS. And here she was, this like supernova, amazing superstar, cellist extraordinaire. She brought the glissandi out in everything she did. And kind of people kind of teased her for being, it was so sensual and sexual and like too, oh, you know, too much for that time period. But she was mm. an international star and could play anything. And she was just this bright light. So, um, Luna Pearl Wolf, this wonderful female composer who I just adore. She's a genius, dear friend now. Um, she approached me about maybe making a piece about Jacqueline Dupre with her. And then we got Royce Vavrick, fantastic librettist and also dear friend. Royce Vavrick was the librettist for the Dog Days piece that I did by Daniel, by, excuse me, by David T. Little. And that piece was really, really incredible. That was at the beginning of my whole modern music journey. And so Luna saw that piece and then approached me and said, hey, would you be interested in like working on a project together? And we brainstormed for years kind of about, we had like all sorts of different plots going. And then she said, what about Jacqueline Dupre? Because her husband at the time, Matt Heimovitz, cellist extraordinaire, he had actually worked with Jacqueline Dupre when he mm. was a wunderkind himself at like 14. He mm -hmm. got to coach with her in New York. So Royce and Luna and Matt and I, together with director Michael Mori of Tapestry Opera in Toronto, got together. We did workshops on it in at this artist retreat in Montana. We did workshops in Montreal and in San Francisco. And we um, came up with this really amazing piece about her life, Jacqueline Dupre. And it's a duo drama. So it's soprano and cello. And that's it. With some wow. pre-recorded, um, like sounds of a record player and whatnot the pipes in you know so it's 90 minutes of me singing my face off and matt playing his face off and hands off <laughs> and it is so emotional and so beautiful and we get to do it in um august 2024 at west edge opera in in they perform in oakland california at the scottish Rite uh temple there or i mean auditorium it is so it's like the depths of what this woman goes through being this super talent and then being challenged with starting to lose it and mm -hmm. she's losing her identity she's losing her husband she's losing everything and how this she calls it this effing di disease i won't say the word out loud but she calls it that you mm -hmm. know and she literally said that in real life matt heard her say that so many times you know because she'd try to play something as an example to him and then um she couldn't do it. Her fingers wouldn't work. And she'd say, oh, this effing disease. Anyway, so we have a great F.U. song in the, in the <laughs> towards the end. That's super <laughs> sorry. I know this nice little. It's very punk rock. Yeah, it's very <laughs> punk rock. It's very it's a good punk rock. And we recorded it uh, last summer in at Skywalker um, with fabulous David Frost um, at the helm of of producing us. That's going to be coming out sometime this year. I'm so proud of it. It's so oh, it's just the most emotional piece I've ever done. It's, it's so, I, I can't even describe it because nothing like that has really been done before. I think with just a, just a cello and just voice and it is amplified, you know, because the cello can be so loud, if, you know, or not loud enough, depending. So it's all, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. perfectly balanced with the microphones. And there's something so poignant about telling somebody's, story who had it all and then 
all went away way too early. She just died way too young. Mm -hmm. She was 35 when she died and Mm. totally, you know, incapacitated by the disease. So how do you train for something like that? I I mean, you're a consummate professional, obviously. So you have your techniques. Can you like maybe run me through some of your warmups or some of your practice leading up to that? Mm -hmm. Well, um, a lot of kind of jogging around the house, <laughs> um, swimming. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna, actually just yesterday. I was like, I've got to find a gym to start swimming again uh, because I just cut, cut all of that out, you know, with COVID and whatnot. And then just went through sure. a move recently, you know. So I've got to find the, the the swimming pool. But I will swim to get the lungs back up to capacity. And then, um, I mean, I'm always singing. I'm always practicing. I do scales, you know, 20 minutes every day almost without fail. I mean, there are days that I don't sing at all. And I think those days are great too. You need rest. Um, But so for an actual example, I'll just kind of do an E vowel from middle C up to um, F. On And then F sharp, I changed to a schwa vowel. And then G, I'll do an ah vowel. And so I just have these little like, do you want like actual, <laughs> actual like exercise? Sure, yeah. No, this is, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, some people like do that straw technique where they can breathe in with a straw, you know. And mm-hmm. I've recently just been um, working with the nose breath. So I just breathe in my nose with it and it just warms everything up. And then I feel how deep that expands my body and then I just live in that expansion and just let it be there kind of an outward appoggiare is what they call it in Italian you know to Mm. lean that uh, support is appoggiare where your body is like this you can feel what that appoggiare is if you breathe in through your nose really deeply you see how it almost feels like the bottom of your lungs and the bottom of your stomach almost pushes out too a little bit Mm mm-hmm but you're yes. not breathing in your stomach because there's no air there. The air is in your lungs, right? But that's your right. body saying, oh, I'm going to support this. And so then you kind of lean out and keep that support outward. You don't push it in because when you go, uh, when you push it in your stomach, your throat gets tight. Right. It's kind of that simple. So it's this outward feel. So I just make sure I have that going. And then I'll just do, you know, like, beady, 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 beady. And then I'll be like, oh, what it, would it sound like if I had it a little bit more behind my nose? Beady, beady, beady. You know, and I just kind of play, right. you know, and like play with feeling. And then I go back to what feels the best, which is usually just telling my brain to sing a vowel and going for it. Because I try not to like place it and say, sing, sing, you know, when I'm actually performing, I'm not like, sing behind your nose, sing, sing from mm-hmm. your, your larynx, you know, I'm not doing any of that. Like you can't, there's no time to think. You just have to be in that moment. So that kind of stuff. And, um, and then I'll just take little sections of the music that I'm working on, uh, you know, and just kind of tear it apart. Like if I have a coloratura scale, you know, a super fast scale or, you know, a chromatic scale to sing. And it could be going through the, you know, you've got a part of your voice called the weakest part of your voice. It's called the the passaggio, where there's like a break in the voice. Break is a strong word. Yeah. You know, chest I live there, voice. Sure. Yeah, my yeah. voice lives there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know what I'm talking about. 
Yes. <laughs> so you have to go through those little those little passageways from chest voice to middle voice to head voice without, you know, pushing. And mm-hmm. so just, you know, so I just remind myself what that feels like. And then I'll just work on little phrases, change vowels, um, you know, do it on a pure ah and then pure e sometimes if it's not too high. And I'll go, oh, actually an ooh works better there or, you know. And so you just play and kind of figure it out. It, those just that just gives you like tools so that when you're out there on stage and something weird happens like oh one night I was doing the Lucia cadenza at the very end of the mad scene and my contact lens like popped out and landed on my cheek mm. and I'm like sitting there with like this frozen eye thing going you know boy jumps out onto my cheek <laughs> and I could tell that all the choristers could like because they're all around me on stage at that time I could see that they were like your contact fell off your, you know <laughs> and so then your mind is thinking so am I going to put it back in and I'm, uh, is there going to be time to put it back in oh I never turn around upstage oh I'm not going to have a moment to do yeah. anyways but during that scene she's got all this difficult coloratura so if you're going to sing that well you better have practiced it every way, which way at your piano right. so that in case something weird happens, you can, you know, do the job you're supposed to do, which is to serve the music first. I have to imagine that your shower sessions are epic. <laughs> your shower singing. I do enjoy a good shower singing. <laughs> my dogs, however, do not enjoy my singing yeah. ever. I always like apologize. I apologize to them and I cover their ears and then I try to put them in another room and shut the door. Like, it's okay. Mommy's going to practice now. Don't hate me because it's loud and high. <laughs> Do you have any um, advice for aspiring opera singers or singers in general? Yeah. I mean, um, I, I love to mentor uh, young singers. Um, it's something that I do as a volunteer thing. I mean, I, I have a couple voice students and whatnot, but I, I and I taught at the conservatory for a couple of years. I realized I, I work better um, when I'm just giving it away for free. I don't mm. want to feel like I have somebody's depending on me for every single one of their technical things or who they are as a performer. So my advice to people is be the captain of your own ship. Mm-hmm. Read everything you can get your hands on if you think you want to be an opera singer, if you think you want to be a classical musician or even just a theater performer. Learn about every technique, every style, what what it means when someone says apoggiare, what it means when, you know, people say project, Mm -hmm. what does it feel like for your voice when you feel good? What, you know, everything you hear, you hear, oh, raise your palate. Oh, don't lift your palate. Oh, sing from your, your pharynx, whatever. Investigate all of these like little, little tidbits of information that you hear. What does that mean when someone says that? And figure out these things for yourself. Don't put all of your eggs into a basket and give it to a coach or a teacher and make them figure you out. Yes, you're paying Mm -hmm. them and hopefully they'll help you figure yourself out. But it's your responsibility to practice. It's your responsibility to educate yourself uh, about the styles, about who you are as an artist. Mm -hmm. Um. So really, that is my advice for young singers. Look, these days, singers are getting ahead so much faster than 
20 years ago when I started mm -hmm. because of YouTube, of TikTok, of Instagram. There's so much information out there. You can Google Jacqueline Dupre and sing a, sing a vocal line like she played her beautiful cello. You can mm -hmm. watch everything Renee Fleming ever performed. You know, Kathleen Battle, Luciana Pavarotti, you know, Cecilia Bartoli, you know, whoever, you know, Anna Moffo, Maria Callas, for that matter. You know, you can go and hear and educate yourself. So watch everything. Learn about every single opera that's out there. Uh, ask yourself, you know, do I want to do this? Do I want to be on stage and portray these characters? Do I want to travel a ton? Do I want to... Um, you know, what do I want to say as an artist? Who am I as an artist? What do I have to say? Anyway, so that's my advice is just learn everything. Be yourself so strongly that people either can't resist you or they you're they, you're repelled. They're repelled by you. Fine. It's a choice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's and, um, you know, to also not get stuck in like one um way of thinking like my technique is the best technique and I'm doing everything right. It's like, well, maybe you could learn from that person over there who's doing it slightly differently. You can be an artist and steal some of their some of their, you know, liquid gold and be like, I'm gonna copy you on that because that's working for you, you know? Um or right. you know, and inform yourself mm -hmm. to be the best artist you could be. That's truly the the best advice I could give. Do you have um anyone that you're mentoring now? I do. Yeah. What's the most rewarding experience that you have by mentoring others in this art form? For me, it's uh, really helping them not have to go through so many difficult things. I, uh, you know, we had the Me Too mov movement. Um, and unfortunately, I ex I've experienced some really kind of scary and weird things in that realm. Mm. Um, one here in the U.S. and one in Europe um, performing where I had some really abusive things. Nothing that I, I couldn't handle, but in retrospect, you know, I wish I had been stronger in the moment to defend myself, stick up for myself, um, maybe report people, you know, but I was afraid to do that because I didn't think I would have a job after that. And mm -hmm. I, I became known as the whistleblower you know, the tattletale right. <laughs> that I wouldn't get hired. And I think that I was probably right to not say anything. And I was mentally strong enough to handle the things that happened to me. They weren't so tragic that I was, you know, physically harmed anyways, any way that was, well, that I couldn't handle. There there was a physical altercation that was pretty intense, but I, I handled it, but it was like, whoa. And I said, no, no. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah. like this sweet, right. oh, ha, 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 you know, ugh. right. Stop playing. Yeah. yeah. You know, like us women are taught to apologize for their behavior. Oh, I'm sorry that you're acting that way, but it's okay. You know, uh, so I wish I had said, get your hands off of me, you disgusting human being. You know, I wish I had like handled it. Right. So I, I tell them about that and a couple other situations that were, um, equally disturbing, but one was verbal abuse and another was, was, um, was similar physical. And, you know, I, I was, I spent so many years almost apologizing for who I was as a woman, you know, like, oh, I 
I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Is this good enough? Is this good enough? Oh, is this going to be okay? Mm -hmm. Instead of really just stepping into my power. Right. As a talented artist who works her tail off to accomplish, hopefully, high quality work. Mm -hmm. So I tell them that straight off the bat, to not suffer fools, to not put themselves in positions where they would be alone with anybody ever. Yeah, and times have changed. Thank God. There's so much more protection yes. put in place. There's so many more people looking out for others and, you know, so much more support there. So that's one thing. Um, it's been satisfying to see someone that I'm mentoring right now winning competitions. Um, she's getting great work. And, you know, we have like an ask me anything relationship. And, you know, I always... Uh, you know, kind of curtail it with, look, this is just my own keyhole of experience. This is just me mm -hmm. coming from my, you may feel differently, but you know, I'll, I'll let you know what I experienced during that. And does that work for you? Does that not work for you? Um, also helping them kind of find it, the technique faster, because I've been through so many machinations of trying to understand my voice um, that I feel like I have lots of different syntax to be able to kind of speak to their brains in different ways and say, okay, how about when I say these words, does that jog something for your body? Does that make you understand it? You know? Right. So in some regards, I feel like I've been through the ringer with all, with so many different techniques, styles or thoughts. And, you know, so hopefully I can just share that with them and they could go, oh yeah, I'll take that, but I won't take that. Mm -hmm. You know? I have to imagine that it's pretty intense in terms of competition as well, right? For various roles and rivalries and can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I tried not to ever be part of the idea of rivalry because mm -hmm. I just feel like we're all competing against ourselves. You know, it's like, you know, and I have probably lost out roles to, to people who were, you know, in many cases much better than me. And in probably some cases, maybe not as good as me technically. And it's just an apples and oranges game. And it's kind of a crapshoot, you know, it's like, well, you, you know, this director really likes you. And so you get hired there all the time. And maybe somebody else is better than you, but they're not getting the job because they don't have the, the rapport with the company or, you know, there's, there's a lot mm -hmm. of that. Um, I've never experienced something negative in that realm. Even if I knew I didn't get a job and somebody else got it, I'm like, I, I really, this sounds so like, Oh, what somebody would say on a podcast to like, <laughs> but I, I, you know, to like garner praise. Right. Like, oh, she's so humble. She's so cool. Right now, <laughs> the emotional capacity to carry around um, a competitive angst. I don't. I'm. I'm too. Uh, well, maybe emotional, or I'm too. I. I can't, I'm too sensitive. I can't, I can't carry mm -hmm. around any of that. So if I've ever experienced it, I literally just like, don't see it. I just push it out of my face. I'm like, there is room for everyone. I really believe mm -hmm. that. I mean it like there is room for everyone. It sometimes makes me a little mad when like somebody is so green and so new to the art form that they're like, I'm an opera singer. And they like sound, right. sound terrible, but they've got all the ego and then they're pushing themselves out right. there on social media and they're like, I'm amazing. So occasionally I'm like, well, you're not amazing, <laughs> but whatever, you know, but uh, like right. one of my, my mentors and dear friends, um, Flicka, Frederica Monstad, she's always like the cream rises to the top, you know, like 
Like, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, the people who are in the 1% out there, they deserve it and they want it too. <laughs> you also have to want it. You have to eat, breathe, breathe, drink, sleep, want it so bad that you're there all the time. Um, and I admire, I admire those people, um, you know, and I, I appreciate the amount of success that I've had and continue to have, but it's not a, that is not my reason for living. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the art form and I love to do my best and I love to see other people do their best too. It's satisfying. Um, yeah. So as far as that, I think there are probably some rivalries, but again, these days, like we all know how hard it is. So, yeah. you know, it's like, if anything, I see other opera singers out there just pulling each other up, you know, mm-hmm. even if like there's a, a bad performance put out on YouTube and you're so tempted to just think in your mind, well, that wasn't very good. I always make myself go, yeah, but you know how hard it is. Maybe they were just having a, an off day. Maybe their dog died that afternoon and they were crying all afternoon. So their throat was tight. Like You just never know. You got to give people the benefit of the doubt because they're out there trying to do this art form that ultimately does lift people up. Mm-hmm. And it's a vibrational factor, you know, like when an orchestra plays and a singer sings that like the sound vibration that is, that is, that is, uh, is made from the, from that connection, from that production of sound, those vibrations come out and hit you and you feel it viscerally in your body. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, these people who are out there just trying to do it, like hats off to just try to to bring something beautiful ultimately to this planet. So, Marty, thank you so much for being on today, the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's good to catch up and learn something. Thank you, John. I'm not very privy to the opera world, um, but I feel like I've, I've learned a lot. So thank you for being so insightful and charming. Aww. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Well, folks, that's a wrap for the Homie Hub. Stay chill, stay curious, and I'll catch you on the flip side.